Welcome to Central Coast Voices, a program addressing the ramifications of change in our communities and beyond, and how today's choices will impact tomorrow's community. This program is a project of Action for Healthy Communities and provided in collaboration with KCBX and the Community Foundation of San Luis Obispo County. Fred Monroe continues to host the program from home with uh, continuing concerns about protecting us all from the COVID virus. Today, Fred will talk with volunteers and staff members from Santa Barbara-based nonprofit ShelterBox. ShelterBox knows it is a human right for everyone to have a place to call home. This is especially true when emergency and permanent shelter is a challenge after a natural disaster or international conflict. ShelterBox is working every day to address this challenge, having provided shelter to over 1.5 million people from Cameroon to the Caribbean. Join Fred and his guests today for a frank and important discussion. You are invited to listen, learn, and participate in our conversation today. You can call 805-549-8855 or email your questions to voices at kcbx.org. Now let's join Fred and his guests. Over to you, Fred. Thank you, Brad. Glad to be with you today. Um, as we've said many times on Central Coast Voices, our our real goal is to bring you credible and valid information and insights from diverse members of our community. We want to address how today's choices will affect tomorrow's community. And I have to start this off today by saying I truly am feeling like we are dealing with um, insights for an organization that is affecting a world community. It's not very often that we have guests on the program that are looking looking at a world far beyond the Central Coast in ways that we may not have understood. We're talking today with folks from ShelterBox, and we're going to explain to you what ShelterBox is because it's a fascinating organization. Many of you may have heard of it. For others, it may be something that you've never heard of before. Uh, based in Santa Barbara, which is a surprising place for for international organizations dealing with any type of um, of Not a good choice of words, but I'll use it. Crisis management, and in this case, this crisis management when it comes to the issues of housing for people that that really may be displaced by not only um, weather or natural disasters, but um, by conflicts that are going on around the world. We'll talk today about how ShelterBox is also probably involved in taking a look at and what they can do in places like um, Ukraine. My guests today are Carrie Murray. She's the president of ShelterBox USA. Um, Stephen Tonkinson, who is a response team member and board member of the organization. And, and Yishun Lai, who is a ShelterBox response team member. Um, it, it's delightful to work with um, discussions with organizations like this, but I appreciate the fact that sometimes the ability to do these with Zoom may have been something we never even thought of possible uh, prior to, to COVID. Really, um, we're talking about a diverse organization. My guests today are based in Santa Barbara. One's in Southern California. Another one is in Florida. Um, and their ability to work together is not just so they can be on the radio with us. This is an organization that uses these kind of tools very effectively, I believe. Um Probably need to, carry. why don't we start with you, uh, some history, because for a lot of us, um, I'd heard of the organization before, but until I started doing research, I did not realize the magnitude of your mission, if you will. So um, share with our listeners 
the origin of the organization? So Shelterbox is a global humanitarian relief organization that focuses on the provision of emergency shelter and basic supplies to set up a household. When you've lost everything and you've been displaced from your home in a natural disaster or in a conflict situation, a civil war situation. So we were founded over 22 years ago. Our roots are actually with one of the oldest service organizations in the world, and it's called Rotary international and we are a separate 501c3 nonprofit but our early founders saw that there were emergencies happening across our world and the basic needs of people were going unmet particularly around shelter so at the time 22 years ago major earthquake it was called the Gujarat earthquake it displaced hundreds of thousands of people and and that time, our founders created what was the very first shelter boxes. And shelter box is based on the premise of what are the things that you need to sustain your life if you lose everything in an instant and you're forced to flee your home? And we know even in the Central Coast, we are not immune to these types of emergencies. So our founders... At the time they were in the UK, they created the very first shelter boxes, just a couple dozen of them. And it was based on the provision of our basic need for shelter. So Fred, our basic needs are around food, water, and shelter. And our founders created a box, which is in essence a survival box. And one, it's a place to call home. Inside the box, there was a family emergency tent and the basic things to set up household. So, so often in disasters, even here, we see you lose power. So there are waterproof solar lanterns. You also have had contamination of the water source. So a water purification unit, containers to store clean water, basic things like blankets, ground mats for sleeping. Aid organizations bring in food and water. What are you going to boil water with? What are you going to cook with? So a whole stainless steel cook set within the box as well. And then other things like basic tools to help with the repair process and just the absolute essentials. One, to have a framework for a home. And then the other items that you think about that are essential to setting up a household. So back when our founders got started 22 years ago, they anticipated helping about a couple dozen families per year. Fast forward to 2022. This year, we will bring emergency shelter to over 60,000 families. That's over 300,000 people. We've served over 2.5 million since we got started. And we are really growing in our scale and impact to reach what is an unprecedented need in our time for the provision of shelter. Wow, enough questions there to follow up with beyond what I have in my notes. The one that comes to mind for me first is, is that do you have a warehouse that literally has some of these things already set up or is your channel of logistics such that a a phone call gets um, a series of boxes set up in a matter of hours? So really, Shelterbox is a model of pre-positioning. And I always say you can't do in disasters what you don't do otherwise. And we pre-position aid all over the world in strategic hubs. And we pre-position the aid items that we're likely to need within those regions that we draw down on in times of emergency. So 
that could be in places like the Philippines, which is endemic to typhoons. We have our shelter kit solutions, as well as things like solar lights, blankets, mosquito nets, water purification. But we also preposition aid in places like the International Humanitarian City in Dubai. We have aid prepositioned in Panama. And so strategic hubs around the world, warehouses that we draw down upon initially uh, when disasters strike. So, um, Stephen, you and Yi Shun have worked in actual on-site situations. I have you listed in my notes as actually response team members. So how did you get involved in the, both of you, how did you get involved in this? And what does it mean to be a response team member? I suspect you have a day job. We do have day jobs. It's true. Fred, thank you for asking that question. Um, Stephen and I are incredibly privileged to be the team members who get sent to areas of conflict or disaster when such things happen. Uh, so what happens is when we see something happening, say it's a hurricane that's coming down the road, or if we see a conflict building, our headquarters is able to take a look at what we call the availability calendar, um, which is where response team members list our availabilities. And then we get called out. Um, sometimes it can be within a matter of 24 hours that we're called out. Sometimes it's a matter of a couple weeks, uh, depending on uh, what the disaster is and, and how we can help and whether or not we can help. Um, but yes, it's a, it's a matter of great privilege and a matter of, of great responsibility. It's not something we take very lightly. Uh, so our communities, our families and our friends rally around us when we disappear from uh, normal life for a little bit, two or three weeks at a time, a couple times a year. Um, and that's also something that I, I want to underscore at this point is this, this, this question of how much it takes to be a response team member. Uh, it isn't just our own lives that we're giving up, but it also is the question of our families and our communities rallying around us to make sure we can serve those who are most in need. Yeah, I want to stick with that for a moment because what yeah. comes to mind for me is, is it? Um, can you give us a snapshot of your, what goes on when when a respond when a request for your services as a team member come in? Um, you know, I'm I'm wondering do you do you stop and pick up um, a shipment to take with you? Do you strategically rendezvous at a certain point so the materials you need are there or are they waiting for you? Um, the logistics of this, I think, are probably as fascinating as the relief. They are, Fred. Um, it, it all depends on what stage we are in the response. Obviously, after said disaster or conflict arises, uh, our headquarters determines that we will be sending a team. And that first team is going to be doing an assessment and identifying the scale and the need and what potential partners or organizations we can work with in that country. So they're just setting up all of that for the next team to come in to then help bring in said aid that's been identified. And this is an ongoing process up until uh, the next teams will help in assisting the distribution of that aid to those areas of greatest need, working again with other organizations or the UN cluster system or, or the governments themselves. And then there's a, a follow-up team that will come in and do uh, a final assessment of sort to then identify if we did the right thing in the right area. So we will go back to those communities that received the aid and ask them, you know, what was it like for you? Did you get what you needed? What can we do better next time? And from there, the organization is constantly growing and improving. Yeah. 
Carrie, the the organization has to pay attention to the need versus the logistics to deliver. Mm -hmm. um, my, my suspicion is even if if I were in an, a floodplain where there was some damage from a from a major um, amount of flooding in, in a river basin. Um, you may be in a situation where luckily there may only be three or four households that were sitting strategically in a spot that had a terrible amount of damage. Um, and Or you may be looking at a situation where there are thousands, of course. Mm -hmm. um, on the economy of scale, how do you address um, a desire to send a... Um, a, a team to work with a, a small number of, of victims versus obviously you'd, you'd like to work with everybody, but you may be looking at a very small situation, but you may be looking at it in a country or an environment where there are no resources available to address that. Yeah. So, well, Sh Shelterbox is closely monitoring all major disasters that happen in our world. And we really do work to try to help some of the most vulnerable people in our world. So one of the things that we look closely at is the Human Development Index. And we look to help people who really don't have a safety net. And so when you look at where we're working in the world, we're working with some of the poorest countries in the world, some of the most vulnerable people. And really, um, we coordinate with many other organizations and agencies. So one of the agencies we coordinate closely with is the UN. And we also work closely with many other large nonprofits that you've heard about, INGOs like Habitat for Humanity or Red Cross. But we also work locally with a lot of smaller nonprofits on the ground as well. And I think the in the case of a disaster, there's always the strong urgency to act, not really good information to act on. So information is the premium. So we really work closely to really understand first. Uh, we don't just ship aid in. We really look to understand what are the needs and the shelter-based needs of these communities and how large are they and can, are we in a good position to best meet those. So we typically deploy our response team to disasters. Simil just recently, we've deployed them to Pakistan. Obviously, catastrophic monsoon season there. What we've seen is 33 million people in need of aid. We see that uh, there's about a third of the country underwater. We knew we needed to help, but we didn't just send aid in. We sent a team in first. And what you didn't hear from Yishan and, and, and Stephen uh, is that these folks, the Shelterbox response team, are some of the most highly trained people in all of emergency response. It takes about a year to become a volunteer frontline response team member with this organization. One in 30 people will make it through the program. These are the folks that deploy to the front lines that work alongside the communities. So that we do go in communities and do assessments first. And you asked about size. Typically what we're seeing in terms of the size of the, fam the number of families that we're helping in any given response is usually around 2,000. Sometimes it could be less like 1,000, but usually it's two, three, four thousand families at a time, sometimes a lot more, depending on if we have the aid and the resources to meet the needs in that response. Ukraine, certainly now it's it's about 25,000 households, over 100,000 people we've been able to help. Um, but we really look uh, closely on trying to meet the unique needs of the community that we're responding to. And it's always different. To, to add to that, Fred, 
you know, many times when I deploy to certain locations, say, for example, Malawi, and I'm telling my friends and family about it, they had no idea anything was going on in Malawi. And that's the case with the majority of our, our deployments is that they're in areas and having conflicts or disasters that back home in the U.S. we don't really are aware of. And it's when situations like the Ukraine arise that really gain the attention of the worldwide news that Shelterbox has a really great opportunity to shine light on what we're doing and how we're helping uh, in this particular situation. Yeah, that's absolutely true, Fred. And and the other thing, too, that I want to add to that is that when we undertake the decision to deploy, it it is with as much data as we possibly can um, get, right? And some of that data comprises information that we get from our response team members that we have deployed into the field. They are our eyes on the ground. Um, They are capable of telling us whether or not it makes sense for us to deploy. Our kit is highly versatile, but it also can be said to be incredibly vertical in nature, right? Um, Emergency shelter is not a thing that we want people to be attending on forever, for instance. Um, So the calculus that's involved in whether or not we choose to deploy is a pretty big decision from the very beginning. We look at things like the sustainability of the response, um, you know, whether or not the the country or the government in, in, in question really needs us there, whether or not we they, they want us there. Um, these are all things that we have to consider, and, and they're things that response team members are trained to look for. I, there's, this is fascinating. I'm, I'm a logistician by, by the nature of, the, of what I've done with most of my life. And the questions that come up for me um, rely, revolve around the logistics of doing this. And one of my first thoughts is that um, if you show up tomorrow, well, if there's a decision that there's a need in a country, a nameless country, and you show up tomorrow, um, you you don't show up instantly with a fleet of trucks or or a, a an organization from um, you know you know from the, the the nearest regiment of police or army. So the credibility of of your initially being on a site and needing to talk to the key people. And the key people may not have any idea who you are, and to some extent, in a lot of parts of the world, the the very fact that you are North Americans makes you suspect for a lot of peoples. I'm I'm wondering how you work through those hurdles before you even actually have gotten an opportunity to assess the situation. You may be dealing with a local government or a local group of organizations that doesn't that feels like somehow they may be wasting their time if they're even talking to you so i'm wondering how that initial contact um evolves into a true response because obviously from your your record your history and your and you and what you've demonstrated there's a tremendously um valuable resource that you're offering I would say that that answer has evolved or over the last 22 years. Maybe 22 years ago, nobody had heard of Shelterbox. But I would say amongst the global NGO community, Shelterbox has made an extraordinary name for itself. We also have 22 years of deployments. We've been, I believe, to over 100 countries. And we have experience already in many of these countries already with connections and networks in place, plus our our 
efforts to work with other organizations, again, whether it's the UN or Red Cross or uh, you, you name it, these larger organizations, we already have a track record. And we have such goodwill with these organizations that when we do show up, we have already a lot of contacts in place and it allows for us to be able to move forward and quickly gathering that information and that data that's going to be necessary to translate back to our HQ to then be able to identify where and what type of aid we're going to be uh, bringing in for the situation. It is always possible, Fred, that we will have to go up to a new country that we haven't deployed to before, right? And your question, I think, is one of uh, is is one of newness, right? Whether or not we can work with with places that we haven't deployed to before, or work with a population that we haven't met before, and the answer is yes. Um, and part of that is protocol, right? We know very very well that it's critical to liaise with the local police department. It's critical to liaise with the local governments, with the local um, nonprofits and the communities that are working to uh, make sure that. That their people are are well taken care of. Um, to bolster Steuben's commentary, we're very well known as being the shelter specialists in the international non-governmental organization world. Uh, so there's that. But yeah, in terms of, of of actually going into into a new country, that's the question we always have to consider. And that's okay, right? I mean, it's just so long as we, as, as so long as we make connections with the right folks, and so long as we make connections with the people who are very well connected to the folks who are in need of help, then we're generally in pretty good shape. Carrie, is there someone sitting, not necessarily in Santa Barbara, because you've all obviously demonstrated your ability to work remotely very well? Is there someone monitoring the the status of the world, if you will? all day long is is there a control tower for your organization or is there another organization you rely upon to specifically look at um whether or not there's there's a need that hasn't been assessed yet that needs to be looked at seriously yeah so the answer is yes and yes <laughs> so first we, we <laughs> i need have, longer answers than that it's a radio program a, we have a large operational headquarters with a very sophisticated operations team and they are constantly monitoring what's happening all over the world those folks many of those not all sit in a operational hub in the uk which is actually in the region where we were founded down in cornwall england Um, and then the other answer is yes to do we also have partners that are monitoring yes We have many partners um, that are also reaching out to us proactively uh, to share information with us. Uh, Organizations like Rotary International, we remain the official project partner of Rotary in emergencies. Um, They typically help us at the local level when disasters happen around the world. Uh, But we also have several other partners. So we have an international MOU with Habitat for Humanity. We work often with them in natural disasters as well. And then in conflict situations, we have several partners that we're working with, a lot of local partners in countries that we have long-term projects in, particularly in, in protracted crisis situations, places like Syria. We're working in Yemen. We're working across the Lake Chad Basin of Africa. So, um, so yes, so we, we are constantly monitoring, but we also have great trusted partners we're working with that are part of the UN as well. 
Right. I can tell you a story. My very first deployment was in 2009 to Sonora, Mexico. And the way uh, Shelterbox found out about that situation was from the local Rotary Club. They had reached out and, and to Shelterbox to let them know that, hey, we were impacted by uh, a hurricane uh, several months ago, but there were still many families living in schools as shelters. And we were, they, they wanted to know if we could make uh, if we could help. And lo and behold, we, we looked into the situation, made more contacts and identified that, yeah, that's something that we could respond to. Um, but again, it, it you have on the other side of that spectrum, the you know, what's what's happening in Ukraine or what happened in Haiti, um, where the world is aware. Uh, I think what makes shelter boxes unique is how we're able to respond to all those different types of situations, however big or small. We will see if if we are capable. And again, with the type of aid that we do and the, the structure that we we have set up, we are able to respond to so many different types of situations. And that I think makes us very unique, very nimble, and very capable of of making the difference. Yeah, I think or, it's really wanna, important. Oh, let sorry. me jump in. Just it's okay. I just want to jump in real quick because I've been a little remiss in not reminding our listeners. If you have some questions about the program you'd like to send by email, you can send them to voices at kcbx.org. We monitor that email during the program. If you, you can also call in at eight zero five five four nine eight eight five five, and the studio will relay your your message and your questions. Also, um, with regard to the email, if you have a rather elaborate or um, or the specific question that beyond what we're talking about on the program about this organization, you are welcome to send an email to us and we'll make sure that it gets forwarded on um, to our, um, our guests and the organization as a whole, because sometimes the opportunity to get answers on a radio program um, is not what you need. Right. I interrupted. Sorry. That's okay. No worries. I just wanted to clarify that one thing uh, that I think it's really important for us to um, underscore here is that our agency doesn't work in a vacuum, right? Um, you mentioned before when you drop into the country and you, you know, you may not know who you're working with. We are part of a big humanitarian system, right? So in lots of cases, when we when we go into country, while we may be given oversight of a certain area of a disaster in uh, the, in Hurricane Maria, Stephen and I, I think we're both in Dominica at some point in time, um, and. In Dominica, we were very much given remit of like an area of that island nation. Okay, however, that was in conjunction with a lot of other agencies who were working to oversee some of the other efforts, right? Uh, because we are shelter experts and because we oversee that part of the humanitarian recovery system or the timeline, um, we have to be seen as being in lockstep and in, and working in conjunction with all these other organizations. So it is part of a big system that we're working under a lot of the time. Before we take a break for a moment, one I guess one of the questions that, that, that comes to mind, because Carrie, you talked about where kind of your command and control center is in England. Um, I'm sure everybody, because you're this is a local radio program and you're a locally based organization that we get to discuss this with. Um, can you share with us how you ended up in Santa Barbara? Because I, if you didn't start in Santa Barbara as a small organization in Santa Barbara, I, I suspect a lot of us would like to know how you ended up in our backyard. Sure, sure. Well, uh, the first piece was um, I was here and I came to the Central Coast to actually help 
uh, lead another international NGO. It was a medical, it's a medical relief organization in Galita called Direct Relief, a very big, large medical relief organization. And I helped lead that organization for nearly six years. And one thing I came to understand about the Central Coast and particularly Santa Barbara was that this is one of the most philanthropic communities in the world. And it's incredibly globally minded. And we have per capita uh, more nonprofits here than almost anywhere else in the country. And I really believed that we could build this organization here and we moved our headquarters, actually, our headquarters at the time for Shelter Box USA was in, in Sarasota, Florida. And over time, we moved it here to Santa Barbara. Uh, as I mentioned, really philanthropic community. We have been very fortunate to have many individuals as well as companies that have really leaned in to help support what is a privately funded global mission. And that includes even our headquarters space, which has been uh, donated to us for several years now. And we're very, very fortunate to have an organization, a big organization that leaned in to help support us, to give us roots here and give us a foundation. So I think, you know, we do have staff all over the world. We have volunteers, many more volunteers than staff all over the world, but we do have a strong center of gravity here in the Central Coast. And I like to think about how Shelterbox helps extend the reach of the Central Coast all over the world through the participation of this amazing, amazing community. Terrific answer. Thank you very much, because I'm sure it was a question a lot of listeners had. Um, We've got a couple of questions with regard to climate change, but we need to take a quick break. So we'll talk about how climate change affects the mission of your organization and um, some other aspects of that. I'm going to turn it back to Brad in the studio and we'll um, be back with you in a few moments. We're talking with folks from Shelterbox and this should be Um, an ongoing discussion because when we're done with this today, we hope a lot of you listening decide this is our organization you'd like to really um, support and um, find out more about. We'll be back. It's up to you, Brad. Thank you, Fred. And we will return to Central Coast Voices in just a moment. From the KCBX community calendar, come check out the Atascadero Community Band Fall Concert on Sunday, October 23rd from 3 to 5 at Atascadero Bible Church. The fall concert celebrations uh, will have songs featuring Exultation in the Mood, uh, Candide Overture, Rhapsody in Blue, Fun, 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 and more. For more information, visit atascaderoband.org. And the KCBX Community Calendar features arts, entertainment, and nonprofit events in San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara, and Southern Monterey counties. You can submit your item to be shared on our calendar page. You'll find it on the website at kcbx.org. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Next time on Latino USA, North Dakota is going through an oil boom and also a population boom. What roles are Latinos and Latinas playing in both of them? probably much bigger than you think. So, I mean, where, do, where are we going wrong? It's because money is replacing our identity. That's next time on Latino USA.
On the next Fresh Air, Evan Osnos tells the story of a Chinese billionaire who emigrated to the U.S. and became a major benefactor of Steve Bannon and efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Osnos writes about the man who promoted his causes with live-streamed videos and a hip-hop song in an article in The New Yorker. Join us. Private companies are buying up water infrastructure. At the end of the day, it usually leads to higher water bills for customers. Water bills tend to only run in one direction. They go up, they don't come back down. I'm Amy Scott, Water Utility Woes, next time on Marketplace. That's all ahead on our Thursday here on KCBX. It is fresh air coming up from 3 to 4, Marketplace from 4 to 4.30, followed by All Things Considered from 4.30 to 6.30. Right now, let's return to Fred Monroe and his guests on Central Coast Voices. Back to you, Fred. Great. Thank you, Brad. We're talking with folks from Shelterbox today. My guests are Carrie Murray, who's the president of Shelterbox USA, um, Stephen Tonkinson, who is a response team member and board member, and Yishun Lai, who is a response team member also. And frankly, the amount of experience we've got at the table today does not often bless us with this program. So I am so glad that you're here, and I'm glad that the mission that, you're, that you've taken on as an organization is is noticeable for both our Central Coast listeners and um, truly remarkable in the world. I truly mean that. Thank you so much. Um, we did get a caller when we were um, going into the break that we didn't get an opportunity to address yet, and they want to know how climate change has affected your work overall. Um, I suspect we could probably do a whole other hour on this topic alone. Um, who wants to jump in first? I can, Fred. Uh, climate change has created an unprecedented need for emergency shelter. Uh, we're seeing incredible flood-based situations. We're seeing incredible drought pl- situations all across the world. Uh, um, right now, I think many people have heard about this incredible monsoon season in Pakistan. Um, there are some provinces that have received like 800% in a month of the rain they normally receive. You have monsoon rains that they normally get uh, a few, you know, three or four cycles a year. They're already at eight for the year. You're seeing melting glaciers. Uh, you're seeing these severe heat waves, which are causing drought-like situations and famines in some parts of our world. So it's just really increased the scale and severity of what we're responding to and has created this unbelievable need. So global displacement right now is at an all-time high. We are at 114 million people in our world that are displaced by disaster situations and conflict situations across our world more than any time in recorded history. And that number is expected to grow to at least 200 million by the year 2050. So we're looking at a really, really incredible displacement situation that we're responding to. And Yishan, Stephen, you see it on the front lines when you're responding. Um, I'd love to hear just your perspective on this. 
Yeah, Steve mentioned our deployment to Malawi a while ago, and I want to underscore the longevity of something like climate change. Um, we had a year or so of massive drought in Malawi. Then we had a ton of rain, a big, big, big storm that dumped a bunch of water onto the country. And what happened was that because the ground was so dry, it was unable to absorb all of that rain. So what happens then? Mudslides. Right, everything gets washed away. All the plantings that um, that the Malawians had done in order to be able to prepare for the next season, all of that seed was washed away. All their crops were washed away. What does that lead to? Famine. Right. So this is one of those things where the knock-on effect of climate change is much larger than we could possibly imagine. Um, it's much larger than than people may have foretold. Uh, so yes, the short answer it has, has a very, very, very big effect on um, on on what we're doing right now. Um, I also want to add that. Climate change also leads to conflict, right? Uh, it leads to things like water rights uh, being fought over, land rights being fought over, grazing lands being fought over. So it, it is a complex, complex situation. It's something we have to stay on top of. And it is one of the reasons that I'm so glad that our organization continues to pivot and evolve and change and grow with the times as needed. I think sometimes we we know in North America that that climate change um, and whether or not it's it's significant or real has become a, a political conversation. Um, I suspect it's if it's a political conversation in the United States, it's probably a political conversation in a lot of other areas also. So I I suspect you are not only dealing with a response to a crisis in a lot of cases, but you're dealing with a population or a or a hierarchy of government and business that in a lot of situations may not want to even acknowledge that, that it exists. Um, the reality of that is that even though it might be called into question in political situations, we're less concerned about whether or not uh, folks are landing on one side of the argument or another than we are with the pointy end of that equation, right? Uh, what we see is the very dramatic effects of climate change. Uh, what we see is populations that are, are, are displaced and have no place to go as a direct result of that. Um, so we, we kind of have to turn our sights on that before we turn our sights to um, political action or political yeah. questions. Yeah. You spoke earlier briefly about some activities in, in Ukraine. So I think one of the things that we probably need to address is the concept of there are places that need your services where it may not be safe to set foot on the ground. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how you sort those out. I I realize that may be an area that Carrie would rather we not have a, a, an in-depth conversation about, but I think it's a reality that would affect all of you and response team members and their families um, I would be concerned if you were going to Ukraine right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, we actually have sent uh, staff uh, into Ukraine. Um, we've also sent staff and volunteers into neighboring countries. Um, I was part of the first team that deployed for the crisis in Ukraine, uh, initially working on the border in, in Poland. 
But I also believe some of the very best work that we do as a global organization is in some of the world's most extreme conflict zones. And there are oftentimes we are working with trusted partners uh, who are helping distribute our aid for us, long-term partners over the course of many years. Syria is a good example of that. Half the pre-war population has been displaced. We've been responding for 11 years continuously. We're gearing up for winterized programs in Syria right now. It's not making the headlines, but it is some of the most life-saving work we do in places like Syria, places like Yemen. Uh, and I, I know that we do never go this alone. We work with some really incredible groups that help distribute the aid for us. We work alongside them often, providing training, sometimes albeit remotely. We're sending aid supplies in. We're helping train on everything from beneficiary selection to monitoring and evaluation and learning so we can map, track, and measure the impact of every response that we have. But we not only have our global teams of staff and response team member, members, but we absolutely have partners that we're working with in some of the world's most extreme conflict zones that risk their lives to distribute this aid for us. And it's one of the reasons it's not our work in natural disasters. It's our work in extreme conflict zones. That is the reason why in 2018 and in 2019, Shelterbox was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. It's for this quiet work that we're doing in, in these protracted conflict zones across our world. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that because we that was something that we I think we do need to make sure people know. And that was that you were nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. And I believe this year you're getting an award from the um, the local chapter of the uh, the UN Association. Yes, on Monday, Monday, October 24th is United Nations Day, and Shelterbox USA is receiving the 2022 Peace Prize from the United Nations Association of Santa Barbara, and that will be in downtown Santa Barbara on Monday evening. Congratulations! Well deserved recognition. Um, Carrie, I want to go back. As as I look at the the notes that that your staff provided for us to get a better understanding of the organization, I am flabbergasted to the fact that in basically seven years you've taken this from an under two million dollar operation to an over ten million dollar operation. Um, when do you sleep? <laughs> You know, uh, Brad, I mean, uh, just yeah, for clarification, yeah. that's when you've been at the helm. It's not just the organization yeah. by itself. Yeah. And globally this year, we'll, we'll be at about uh, just over $20 million. But uh, this organization really has risen because of the incredible people that comprise the organization. And it, it's not paid staff. We have very few paid staff. It's of so many of our volunteers, as well as the people who provide the, cha- the private charitable support that really recognize that our work is ongoing every single day of the year. And, you know, it's so much of our work never breaks the headlines. I know there was an avalanche of goodwill and support when everyone across the world saw what was happening in Ukraine, starting in really the the end of February. 
but there's so much need across our world. And so we have been really working hard to really increase the scale and the impact of what we do, but we couldn't do it without volunteers. We couldn't do it without the private charitable support and the people who lean in, who recognize that they can help really transform someone's life somewhere in the world. And where we are focusing, it's it's really the most vulnerable people in our world that don't have a safety net that we're fortunate to have here in the Central Coast when we've had catastrophic emergencies. And so I think people do recognize that. And so we have really been growing uh, our work. So you mentioned one and a half. We're, we're at two and a half million people that we've brought shelter to since we got started. It took us 15 years to reach the first million. It took us five to reach the second million. And a big, big catalyst of that has been the support we've been receiving from the Central Coast. That's good to hear. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad we have you on the program today to talk about that. I, I think that there are there are organizations that you work with that you've spoken of. Um, you know, I'm, which brings me to another question. The you've talked about dealing with Habitat for Humanity, talking about other organizations, obviously Rotary, which is a key part of your, your organization foundation. Um, do, you, do you have an annual discussion, if you will? We can do more things by Zoom now than maybe everybody having to fly to the same location. Um, when you analyze the last year, who all sits at the table um, and says, this is what worked really well and this is what we're missing um, you know, gee, maybe we need to talk with Doctors Without Borders more because we're missing some information about something that they're involved in. And I just picked that as a hypothetical organization because it came to mind as one I'm familiar with. Sure. So our organization at Shelterbox has been undergoing a large scale global strategic review, and we're actually building out strategic plans that go out for the next five years. And it's rooted in how are we going to have greater scale and greater impact around the world, i.e. how are we going to bring shelter to more people each year in some of the world's most extreme conflict zones, but also the ever increasing disasters that were natural disasters that we're responding to as well. So we have a diverse global group of stakeholders that have been feeding into this large-scale strategic plan from looking at the budgeting, looking at how are we going to continue to innovate, how are we going to build sustainability into everything that we do so we can reduce our environmental impact. We're talking to our global partners in some of the some of these extraordinary conflict zones. So we know that, you know, even with the Ukraine crisis, just because it's it's, it's falling off a bit from the headlines doesn't mean that this is, this is resolved. There are millions of people who've been displaced who will likely be displaced for a period of years. So we are also talking to our global partners around the, how we're going to scale some of these really important programs across our world and have greater impact. Yeah. yeah, I think Fred, a really good example of that is our, um, our recent achievement, which is that we've gone plastic free in in all of our deployed aid um, and that's a really big deal. Uh, you know, we talked about sustainability before, and we've talked about taking care of the climate before. That's that's a for for an agency that relies on on good packaging. You know, to see our to see our aid uh, follow through. That's um that's a big deal for us. So it's one of those things that we looked at, and the way that we did that was by partnering with other organizations and seeing what they were doing. You 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 briefly hit on the discussion about training re response team members. Um, I suspect 
the, that's an area that's always a challenge because we're not talking about a a simple volunteer Saturday afternoon type organization here. Um, you you mentioned I forget the number that the number of people who who for lack of a better way of describing it don't make it through the training process to be response team members. Mm-hmm. Um, what is what is available to people to become involved in the organization? I think in a lot of cases, there are people who may not have the financial resources to really be super supporting of your organization, but would like to volunteer. Sure. Uh, Well, I'm a huge believer that everyone has something to contribute. And I believe that there's so many ways to get involved and engaged in this organization. So you've met Stephen and Yishan. Obviously, they serve as volunteer response team members. Not everyone can give weeks of their time and deploy to the front lines of a disaster situation. But we have other opportunities, ambassador programs across the United States. We have hundreds of ambassadors who really help to raise visibility and mobilize the private charitable support that we need to do this work. Uh, And also here in Santa Barbara, we also have several interns and volunteers that come help work within our office. But there are many ways to contribute to the organization's work. And um, Stephen, I'd I'd love to share. I know you probably have some ideas as well. You serve with multiple hats uh, for this organization as a volunteer. So if you can share some of those. Of course. So, Fred, first and foremost, um, the way I got involved with Shelterbox was as a donor. I was so impressed with what the organization was doing and where the money was going. I knew exactly who and how I was helping. And that was the first thing that I connected with right away. But I was curious and I wanted to learn even more about the organization that I was so impressed with. And I came across this opportunity to become a response team member. And I was sold right then and there. And I went through that process. Now, you know how people say like, man, I don't think I could have gotten into my university now because all the scores are so high and everything like that. Well, I, I feel the same way about becoming a response team member. I got in at the right time because now it's just so amazing and impressive, the the candidates that are that are coming through. But To that extent, I then became a response team member, and it's still one of the most fulfilling things I've ever done. But I felt like I could do more with the amount of experience that I've had, and I became a board member, and I became an ambassador, and I uh, now have become an adventurer, where uh, it's just this amazing platform that Shelterbox has provided people that have certain passions and want to line them up with causes that are also as important, important to them. And I just recently did this, uh, this Everesting challenge in Utah where I climbed a mountain, the equivalent of Everest elevation of 29,000 feet. And with the help of Shelterbox, we were able to create this amazing fundraising event and raise so much awareness uh, doing this challenge as an adventure. And so, again, there's so many different ways that people can get involved with Shelterbox. If you connect with the mission and what we're doing, there's always a way that you can help and give back. And whether it's with your time, whether it's with your checkbook, or whether it's with your feet, <laughs> there's, there's all kinds of ways that you can, you can participate and be a part of this organization. 
We're down to our last few minutes. We could talk about this for a very long time. I appreciate truly having all of you here, both as interesting guests on the radio and as, as true humanitarians who are carrying out an incredible cause. Um, in our last few minutes, as most of our listeners know, I try and get out of the way and give you all the last word. Um, Yishan, I'm going to start with you. You Tell us what you want to make sure that we don't leave the table today without remembering. Oh, this, you know what, this organization has, has taken up an incredible amount of my time, and it also has made me grow as an individual. I think what it's done for me is to expand my sense of compassion for the things that might be going on around the world that we don't know about. Uh, headlines that, that, that don't make our newspapers, right? Uh, folks out there who might need our help. Um, and really, I want to encourage everybody to, to find something like this, right, that expands your own sense of what it means to be a citizen in this world, uh, to gain more awareness of, of what somebody else might be undergoing at any given time. Um, and uh, we would welcome you to join us. So, Thank you. Stephen? I would say that for me, it's, it's all about the community. My, my community back home in Miami is why I do this. And I think because of what we've been through and what we have to prepare for all the time when it comes to natural disaster here, I think the Central Coast can connect with that as well with your recent disasters, whether it's because of flooding or fires. There's empathy there with who we're helping. And I think that is something that we can all gravitate to and hold and use for our motivation to want to make change, change in the areas that we think are, are most important to us. So again, to, to Yishan's point, to, to be citizens of this, this global community and, and to make that difference. My goodness, you, you are some of the briefest people I've spoken with with regard to closing comments. <laughs> it's um, part of our training. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> Radio time is... Brief closers, thank you. <laughs> Carrie. Well, I would say at Shelterbox, we are really working to confront one of the biggest issues plaguing our planet today, and it's this massive displacement of people. And I do feel that here on the Central Coast, we all can relate to what it feels like to have to evacuate our homes. Some people lose their homes, uh, but so many places in the world, there isn't a safety net. And so for an organization like Shelterbox, we might be the only organization that's shelter-based that's coming to help in some of these communities. And really, shelter is the first step in the recovery process. And I think all of us during this COVID pandemic can relate to how important your home has been to your safety and well-being for you and your family. And so this work is absolutely important. And if you don't have a roof over your head, it's you can't work. Your kids can't go to school. And so something as basic as the provision of emergency shelter and the basic things like a solar lantern, a water purifier, a blanket, they are the building blocks to the recovery process so that you can move on with your life again. And that's what we're doing every day is enabling the self-recovery of communities all across our world. There are so many ways to participate. Um, I love that we have someone like Stephen and Yishan. They serve as volunteers. They serve in a board capacity. They serve as ambassadors. They run races with a box on their back. But, um, but everyone can participate in some way. And so if you're so moved, I would hope that you go to the website. It's shelterboxusa.org. Also, there's a Shelterbox USA 
Facebook page, Instagram page, so you can learn about our current deployments, which include Ukraine, Pakistan, Syria, Yemen, and you can learn about all about our global work. So Fred, Brad, thank you so much for having us today. We really appreciate being able to help spread awareness of this organization that's really extending the reach of the Central Coast. We've been doing this for a long time, but there are there have been very few opportunities to talk to organizations with the international magnitude that, that Shelterbox has. I was thrilled when our producer um, shared with me that you were available to do this, especially leading into United Nations Day on Monday. Uh, for people who may be in the Santa Barbara area um, or willing to make the drive, is the um, is the presentation on Monday open to the public? Is it a private event? It is. Tickets are available. They're $35. They include drinks and food. And it's downtown Santa Barbara at a restaurant called Pascucci's at 509 State Street. It's from 5 to 6.30. And you can go on the Shelterbox USA Facebook page for more information or the United Nations Association of Santa Barbara website to purchase tickets. Wow. I'm glad I'm glad you're in our community. I'm glad we got to talk about this. I hope that we get some people paying closer attention. You may get some people who really um, would like to be considered as re, uh, response team members. I realize that's a probably a grueling process, but um, the two of you who are here that are response team members are both smiling still on the program. So I guess that's a good sign from that standpoint. Um, this has been Central Coast Voices. I thank you for joining us today. I want to remind you that next week, Chris Kington Barker will be here with her guests. They're going to commemorate Nat National Children's Grief Awareness Day. Chris will be speaking with mental health professionals, professionals about their work with children experiencing grief in their lives and how they face that child challenge and how members of their community and their larger expanded community can help them face that. Um, grief is tough for everyone. It's especially difficult for children who can't quite understand why indeed it's affecting them or what it is. Um, and that's going to be a program that Chris is going to do next week that I think will be very, very rewarding to listen to. As we've said many times before, we are a project of Action for Healthy Communities, which is a project in uh, in coordination with the Community Foundation of San Luis Obispo County, along with KCBX. You can look at Action for Healthy Action, SLO.org, if you'd like more information about some of the studies and reports that Action for Healthy Communities have done. I want to thank the um, support and underwriting of Joan Gellert Sargent, who has been a longtime supporter of the program. You can reach us at KCBX and at voices by by emailing kcb i'm sorry let me back up i'm doing it backwards sorry voices at kcbx.org we will look at your emails if you have any emails that you'd like to specifically send along to our today's guests we will forward them to them um, this has been support supported by the efforts of kcbx listeners thank you to uh, to brad kyle who's been our in-studio engineer today Thank you to my guests, Carrie Murray, um, Stephen Tonkinson, and Yishan Lee, or Yishan Lai. Sorry about that. And I thank you very much. This has been Central Coast Voices. <laughs>